0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Rob Mahoney, and on the other line, Ben Golliver of The Washington Post. What's up, man?
1: Not too much, Robert? You know, actually, I wanted to ask you this because I discovered a couple weeks ago that Andrew's real name is not Andrew, it's Edward. And, you know, Rob, are you really Rob, or do you have an alter ego, a pen name, or something else that you're trying to slip uh, over on the reader's?
0: You know, I wish I were secretly a Seamus or something, but it's just Robert. (laughs) So sadly, not too interesting.
1: Got it. Well, thanks for joining me, Robert, Um, which is hilarious because you're the absolute last person I think of when I say the name Robert. Um, You're definitely a Rob. Thanks for joining me as the special guest. I teased your appearance last week, and I'm sure everyone is, you know, doing the wave and incredibly overjoyed uh, to welcome you here. We're going to have a real fun uh, kind of roundabout type episode. Andrew's not here to kind of organize things. So, you know what happens? You know, everything's uh, left to, to chaos when the substitute teacher is uh, in charge, and that's me. We're going to quickly run through some Christmas Day stuff. You had an awesome profile earlier this season of Luka Doncic, and I want to just go behind the scenes with you and, and you give me all the tidbits and the open floor globe, all the tidbits about Luka that you uncovered when you were writing that. Uh, just today on the Washington Post, I put up a long profile on open floor favorite Jaron, uh, aka Jaron Jackson Jr., aka J Jr. as his parents call him. So we've settled the nickname controversy there. Uh, we'll, we'll dig into that as well. Uh, and then I also thought maybe we we could close out with either some New Year's resolutions or just a New Year's check in on some of this year's uh, you know overachievers and underachievers. To date, but let's just dig right in with Christmas because you know, we nearly had the NBA's life flash before its eyes, right? I mean, LeBron James uh helps the Lakers pull the upset of the Warriors at Oracle, but you know, in the third quarter, he leaves holding his belt area to use my favorite euphemism and he he winds (laughs) up being diagnosed with the strained groin. Rob, we got a question from Nick who asks, Is LeBron James Player tanking by getting quote unquote injured isn't he reminding Rob Palinka and Magic Johnson that he is in fact human and just one fluky injury away from a rapid decline? This would in turn force the Lakers front office towards a trade for Anthony Davis to maximize LeBron's window for winning. Now, Rob, we get a lot of these crazy player tanking theories after I came up with this idea, you know, over the summer. This is one of the wackiest, but I raise this issue because did you have Kobe flashbacks? I mean, obviously it wasn't as serious as the Achilles injury, but when you have this Lakers megastar, this guy who so much of that franchise is kind of built around, uh, so much of the league is built around with that showcase game on Christmas day, just getting record ratings and he comes up lame. I'll be honest. I panicked. Did you have a panic moment watching that?
0: Slightly I mean, exactly for exactly the reason you're talking about, in terms of this being a showcase of what the league is supposed to be all about. And the idea that LeBron would go down in that game with potentially, you know, maybe the most serious injury of his career, it seemed like at the time. I, I don't know that we've ever seen LeBron be in in that kind of pain before, in that kind of limitation where he's leaving a game, it looks like it could be the kind of nagging thing that follows a player throughout a season. And thankfully that, you know, has turned out not to be the case. But it, i I will say if the <laughs> Player taking is one of your wildest ideas that I've ever heard from you and there is something kind of amazing about the idea of LeBron who's always been like communicating through back channels and you know subtweeting people like sending a message via groin strain would be just a next level evolution for him.
1: Well, look, I was ready to dismiss this idea outright, but then in the post game comments, he's like, Oh, me with injuries, I never worry about that too much. Like, what? <laughs> like, you could just control how you heal. And then the next day, he announces on Twitter that, you know, he dodged a bullet and everything is going to be fine. And, and they've listed him as day to day going forward, although he will miss uh, his first game in more than 150 games. Uh, when the Lakers play the Kings on Thursday night, I, I don't know. I mean, I understand that LeBron is supposed to be super humid, but does he have that level of body control where he could just kind of like flip the injury switch on and then switch it off? I don't know.
0: Well, I think the only the only flaw in this theory, as far as I'm concerned, is that do we really think that Magic Johnson, who's like the master of the wink-wink tampering violation on national television, do we really think he needs to be convinced that the Lakers need as many stars as they can possibly get?
1: That's a good point, because I was at Oracle Arena. There were a lot of Lakers fans there, and I, I tweeted a photo of one Lakers fan who had a big sign that was like calling out the Warriors fans for being bandwagoners uh, while wearing a LeBron jersey, which I thought was just perfect. Uh, the spelling was wrong, of course. I mean, there was you know lots of grammar errors. It was just a, a fantastic scene, but it was a little surprising that Magic wasn't like sitting right beside him with his own sign saying "AD." You could be playing on Christmas if you just forced a trade to LA, but you're sitting home and no one's talking about you. I mean, I could see Magic uh, maybe resorting to those lengths.
0: Yeah, I mean, if anything, he needs to get out in front of this thing in an even more visible fashion, just absorb the tampering fines, just get on record, make sure everyone knows what your intentions are. I don't see any problem with it.
1: Hey, while we're on the subject of AD, um, we did get an interesting question. uh, Well, two questions, actually. First, uh, Finley asks, did the Pelicans make an inevitable negotiation with uh, Anthony Davis harder for themselves? by not keeping either DeMarcus Cousins or Rajon Rondo. Those are both bigger names than their replacements, and the team was winning with them in the rotation more than they are this year. Uh, although I think it's pretty similar uh, when, when Cousins was on the court, but in any event, uh, he continues. I don't see how they can add a big name by trade this year, so aren't they just relying on loyalty if, if they want to keep AD? And I think they're you know, might be something to uh, what Finley is saying. You know, one theory I've had is that, you know, Anthony Davis has been pretty careful in public not to, um, you know, not to push the issue in terms of, you know, his unhappiness or impatience or anything like that. Is it possible that he's sort of got kind of a deal with the Pelicans where it's like, look, I'll be a good team player during this season, but if this doesn't go the right direction, you guys have got to trade me this summer, because I'm still struggling to square the idea that he's so happy in New Orleans, given how the pieces have turned over, and he's bought into whatever their vision is, given the big name departures uh, like Cousins and Rondo. What's your general take on the state of AD rumors uh, as we head into 2019?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily that he's thrilled about the state of the Pelicans or the moves they've made in recent years or kind of how everything has shaken out there. And more so that I think guys who come into the league as stars, for one, they want a chance to see if they can win on their own terms, to see if they can win being the you know definitive best player on a team, as the only star on a team, to see just like how far they can push that before they start reining it in, before they start saying, okay... I really need to start looking to maneuver myself either to another team or maneuver another star here to really align things better for my contending window. I think there is a, you know, four, five, six, seven year period there where guys like AD are trying to prove something, whether it's themselves, to other people, whoever it is. And I think he's kind of nearing the end of that. And it does coincide, obviously, with, you know, the end of that second contract term, the end of, you know, when a player who's drafted by a team might realistically stay there and be within the team's control because of restricted free agency. So when you start to look at that and you know where Davis might be mentally right now in terms of his investment with the Pelicans, I think he has every reason to be all in for this season because realistically they're not going to trade him. And so he doesn't have a lot of alternatives as far as that goes. But looking forward, I think you know, I think he is going to be looking around. I think he is going to be measuring his options. And yeah, I don't think it's necessarily him being perfectly content with where he is so much as that New Orleans overall may have treated him well as a city. And the Pelicans as a franchise may have done right by him in certain ways. But ultimately, he's going to have to make a a cold calculation for himself in terms of what's best for his career.
1: Yeah, I do want to maybe push back a little bit. In my mind, if he played the madman card, if he just came out and said, you know what? This situation sucks. You got rid of all the players I didn't want. I don't know if ownership really cares. We're never going to be a contender. I want out. I'm pretty convinced that New Orleans would buckle. You know, I, I, they're they're loving to talk about, oh, we're never going to trade Anthony Davis. We wouldn't trade him for Beyonce, as Alvin Gentry says. Okay, that sounds well and good if you've had those kinds of conversations and they've been positive with Anthony Davis. But if he were to wake up and just say, you know what, enough's enough and really press the issue, uh, I think that he could probably call their bluff, which is why I kind of am wondering if they've just got a handshake agreement here, you know, behind the scenes where it's like, look, it's in everybody's best interest for Anthony Davis to kind of, you know, play nice this season. And then if he does want out down the road, you know, maybe they'll help facilitate it. I mean, to me, it seems like that's where this is going. Uh, The only question is kind of uh, the timing route. Um, I'm wondering, as you watched Warriors-Lakers— are you this is kind of the hot take question. Are you convinced the Lakers could be a Western Conference Finals team? And then again, looking through this Davis prism, if you were him watching Warriors Lakers uh, you know on Christmas, does that become a situation where you're like, okay, you know, you don't want to overreact to one game, but okay, these guys could really push uh, and really make some noise here. Anthony Davis really could be the piece. To kind of lift the Lakers up to the Warriors level and really make this things interesting next season?
0: Well, I, I do think they have a chance to be a Western Conference finalist, but it has more to do with the vacuum in the conference than them, where, you know, because the Rockets have taken a step back or, you know, have fallen off a little bit, that there is that opening and there's no, you know, clear air apparent to it. And so it defaults to, okay you know, who are the contenders here, and when you go through that list, a team with LeBron is going to jump out, and when they have performances like they did on Christmas, they're going to jump out even more so, but I think Davis is in a weird position with that, where, especially with LeBron missing a good chunk of that game because of his injury, and, you know, the other guys having to kind of take it home, he's almost in a position like where where Kobe was when the Bulls were considering trying to trade for Kobe, and they almost had to gut their entire roster, you know, it's going to be the the hall of, you know, the Luol Dengs and the Ben Gordons and the Kirk Heinrichs and whatnot. And this, this young, promising team was going to be basically completely unloaded to try to get Kobe. And so it's like, if you're Anthony Davis and you're watching that Lakers game on Christmas, the guys who are winning that game, are they even going to be on that team if the Lakers trade for you? If you like Lonzo, if you like Brandon Ingram, if you like Kuzma, are those guys even going to be on the roster anymore?
1: That's a good point. You know, if you're Magic Johnson selling Anthony Davis, it's like, you know, you're trying to really emphasize the aura of the Lakers being back, of the Lakers fans cheering at Oracle Arena and waving at the Warriors fans as they left the the building early, as opposed to like really digging into the nitty gritty of the roster because half those guys uh, might be needed in the trade package. Um, what were your other impressions, I guess, uh, from that Warriors-Lakers game? Just being in the building. I expected a lot more from Golden State. Their guys seem focused and ready to go before the game. You know, Steph is out there just, you know, swishing uh, his logo bombs, just one after another. Uh, and then he again struggles basically for the seventh straight time on Christmas. He failed uh, to get to 20 points. So he's averaging like, you know, 12 points per game on Christmas. And uh, he's he's shooting like below 30% on Christmas. It's just kind of a weird, uh, you know, oddity of his career uh, and you know the the rest of the team kind of followed behind that. You know I thought LA did a really nice job of double teaming Steph and Katie, forcing the ball out of their hands. But look, that's not like a rocket science strategy, right? I mean, when Golden State is at its best, you can't get away with doubling guys because Clay will make you pay, because Draymond will make you pay with his playmaking, because Igoudala is sitting there in the corner on the backside, like ready to make you pay. But the strategy worked because. You know, Golden State's offense just looks really choppy and top heavy right now. Uh, and as soon as the stars were giving the ball up, you have guys like Jerebko and McKinney just tossing up bricks. Uh, you've got you know Draymond looking looking not comfortable at all uh, with his shot, and Clay is is clearly in an extended rut. Uh, you know, this is the the big question for you, I guess, Rob. You know, given all that are we looking at this as, you know, the Warriors, you know, kind of coasting through the regular season or did you see anything that might pop up as problematic, you know, come May and June for them?
0: I mean, this looked like a game to me that they got up for. This wasn't the Warriors, you know, sleepwalking through yet another regular season game as they have over the past couple of years and understandably so in some cases. I think they, you know, they were going for this game. And it was more a matter as you mentioned of the double teams that they that the Lakers threw, and really just kind of the the waiting coverage. Not even just the double, but, you know, the guys kind of cramping the lane, the extra bodies that are just hanging around in the right areas who were, you know, in theory supposed to be guarding, whether it was Iguodala or McKinney or Draymond or any number of other Warriors who are not Steph or KD. And I think that really caught up to them a little bit. And so, you know, we can talk about Steph's struggles for sure because, you know, by the box score numbers, he has not played well in a lot of these games. But to me, when you watch this one in particular, you know, as you kind of alluded to, this is the story of Clay and Draymond. And if if Clay isn't scoring well, or isn't at least, you know, posing some kind of mobile threat, which he wasn't, and if Draymond isn't, you know, even if he's not shooting well, if he's not able to connect the dots of the offense, making the right kinds of passes, you know, turnovers have been a big problem for him this season, and if he's not able to be that connective tissue, then those double teams work. Then all of a sudden, you know, the Warriors look a lot more like the Portland Trail Blazers, where, you know, you're banking on Al Farouk or Evan Turner to make plays. Because if, you know, if Draymond isn't that guy, if he's not an all-NBA caliber player or even, you know, and not just defense, but a really important part of their offense, this is a much lesser team.
1: Man, that's a great comparison, and uh, you know, I, I'm I'm struggling with the role reversal right now because you're bringing so much logic to your takes that I feel like I have to kind of like uh, bend myself into a hot take Andrew Sharp zone uh, to kind of balance things out. So I'm gonna bring in a super hot take from a uh, reader Daniel, and I'm only doing this because Sharp's not here. Because if I read this question when Sharp was here, he would have uh, probably. An aneurysm he would flip out, and we might come to blows. Daniel asks, "Should we at least have an honest conversation about whether Steph Curry is overrated?" And he's saying this in light of another poor showing on Christmas, kind of a showcase game uh, that Steph didn't, you know, shoot that well. Uh, he says, "I don't question his position in the league right now. He's definitely a top five player. I'm just wondering about his long term reputation." Are we sure he's a top 30 guy? Far too often, Steph disappears or struggles in big games under pressure. As a main guy and a number one option on his team, all he ever did was beat LeBron in 2015, who was without Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving. And even then, he wasn't able to dominate the finals, losing the finals MVP To Andre Iguodala. Look, I think Andre Iguodala won the finals MVP. LeBron James was the real finals MVP of that series. Steph did not lose that award. You can't lose that award. But Daniel continues. Anything that Steph did after Durant joined the team doesn't really count. Steph still hasn't gotten a signature finals moment, even when KD has dominated in high pressure situations. Like I said, this is a very hot outside the box, unorthodox take from Daniel. I'm just curious though. Like you laid out a lot of the the logic behind why you know a Steph Curry off night translate to such doom uh, for the Warriors because of those supporting guys. Uh, but can we truly explain what's happening to Steph? Uh, you know, individually. I mean, he even said after the game, "I don't know what's going on. It was a tough night. Uh, he he was you know a little bit down on himself uh, during the post game interviews." Uh, is there any kernel of truth to what Daniel's saying, or is he just flinging stuff against the wall?
0: I mean, I think there are kernels of truth to each of those specific circumstances. When you're looking at a single series, a single game, you can find reason why reasons why Steph struggled within that game or within that series. It's just when you try to thread the needle between all of them in this narrative that Steph isn't what other people think he is, that he isn't a top X player, that he isn't a worthy MVP or, you know, however you want, whatever line you want to draw, and whatever asterisk you want to try to put on Steph's career, it's it's that connection that I think is where it gets a little weird. Because yes, Steph did not you know did not perform well in certain games or in certain series. But ultimately, the Warriors are not the Warriors without him. They run the, you know when he's not in the lineup, when he's you know even even just on the bench over the course of a game, when they run their sets, those sets have no shape. When you know when they try to push in transition, their transition game looks entirely different. One of the best teams of all time, basically. Looks completely out of sorts when he's out of the lineup, and so I have a hard time reconciling that with the idea that okay, he struggled in these certain games, he's you know whether they're marquee games or not, because of how important he's been to that team overall. And it's you know the, the finals MVP thing, I, I think we really just need to put to bed. I mean, to me, Steph was the finals MVP of that series. I have a world of respect for Andre Iguodala, but Curry's ability, like in this game, to draw and handle pressure is what won the Warriors that series. So if you look at the contrast between what the Warriors won in the 2015 finals and the way they played on Christmas, a lot of that difference is the fact that Steph was able to get the ball out of those pressure situations, and his team was able to capitalize on them. And that doesn't happen. You know, Draymond's not a downhill player if you don't set up that double. Andre Iguodala isn't getting open shots if you don't set up that double. Klay Thompson's not pulling up open off the curl if you don't set it up. And so just because Curry's at the beginning of plays rather than the end of them is a very strange way to put a demerit on his career. And one of the things I never really understood. But, I mean, look, look, Daniel, if if you're saying that Steph isn't what we may think he is, he isn't a top X player, because all he ever did was beat LeBron, I, I don't even know how to respond to that.
1: Yeah, it's not like he didn't beat LeBron in his prime. I mean, come on, that was, let's not diminish that accomplishment. By the way, two-time MVP, unanimous, and 73 wins. That counts for a lot historically, and I think that Steph, uh, you know, that that top 30 category, he's there. I mean, at least to me. Uh, real quick, though, defending what Daniel said, I do think that Kevin Durant earned both of his finals MVP awards. And I do see some kind of revisionism where people try to say, well, look, the Steph impact is what sets up Durant, uh, you know, makes it you know possible for him to do what he does. There's no question that those guys have a really nice interplay when they're clicking. And it's a mutually beneficial relationship, just like... The Steph and Draymond partnership before Durant got there was incredibly mutually beneficial with Draymond's playmaking and, uh, you know, the the high screen roll stuff they used to always do, uh, just really, you know, making opportunities available for Steph, uh, you know, kind of vice versa. Uh, But I I think that what we're seeing when guys like Klay Thompson and Draymond Green, very good players, uh, have off nights and everything falls apart to me it does reinforce this the consistency and the value of what Kevin Durant is able to do and his ability to do that stuff in huge moments should not be undersold or taken for granted and just say hey look you know he's only doing it because Steph is out there that's not the case i mean KD had multiple incredible finals performances uh the last 2 years uh you know Steph helped but Steph was not the guy who you know kind of like gets all the credit for that like like some warriors fans uh tend to Uh, you know, praise him with. Now, on the flip side of that, though, our buddies Sam and Andy at the Warriors World uh, Light Years podcast, uh, they have been really harping on, you know, Golden State's offense this year. Basically, the, the gist of their argument this season and in past seasons has been, look, take the reins off Steph and just let him go. And I would say that, you know, Kerr's very egalitarian approach to the offense doesn't bother me all that much when I'm watching it on television because I definitely see where he's coming from. I do believe in the strength in numbers ethos, even though a lot of people think that stuff is corny. But when I was in person and I'm watching just Kavon Looney, how many touches and dribbles and shots does this guy get? Jerebko chucking up wide open three-pointers that, look, if Steph has three guys on him, that's still a better shot than what Jerebko is throwing up in those situations. A big part of me was thinking, look, Sam and Andy are onto something here. Maybe Steph, you know, looks you know worse in some of these high uh, pressure moments because he doesn't have the same level of freedom and empowerment as a guy like James Harden, uh, as a guy like Russell Westbrook, as a guy like LeBron James, and that maybe our perception of Steph Curry would be different uh, in these, you know, these bigger showcase games, if not for Steve Kerr.
0: It's a good point. And I think there's no question that Curry's game isn't as immutable as a guy like Durant. He's not going to be able to create in the same fashion that Durant is, you know, against any kind of pressure, any kind of defender. KD's just so big and has such a good handle for his size that he's able to create pretty much against anybody. And so in those really tight defensive situations, KD has something for the Warriors that Steph doesn't. Uh, what's interesting in kind of the bigger picture of this is if Steph had been that guy consistently, if he was given the rope of a Harden or a Westbrook or push to be that kind of player, does Durant ever come to the Warriors in the first place? Or is that kind of the the threshold or, you know, the foundation of what made the Warriors so appealing for a guy like Durant to join the team? Is that egalitarian offense? Is the fact that, you know, Steph can get really hot and can have huge scoring nights, can, you know, go 8 of 11 for 3 in a game like it's nothing... But at the same time, the offense is still geared towards getting these other guys involved, including other stars.
1: Oh, it's a great point. I mean, didn't KD answer this uh, for us uh, himself when he said recently that lots of stars don't want to go play with LeBron because he always has the ball? I mean, uh, I think people really focused in that little KD versus LeBron debate on the idea of the toxic environment and the fanboy media members, you know, following LeBron around and hyping him up at every turn and, and how that makes it difficult for his teammates, but Katie was also specifically saying like, look, if you're a Kawhi Leonard type guy, do you really want to go and be on a roster where you're clear cut number two guy and LeBron is going to be the alpha and the omega of everything that you're doing? It's a fair question. And I think part of Golden State's pitch uh, you know, to Durant at the Hamptons uh, and in the years since has been, look, you're going to get the ball a lot. You're going to be comfortable. I mean, it, it might not be quite as many Shots and and touches as you got in Oklahoma City, but they're going to be high quality uh, looks. They're going to be high percentage looks. You're going to be in spots where we know you can do it. You're not going to have to carry the whole load by yourself, uh, but you are going to be able to eat because Steph isn't a typical superstar. And I think that's one thing to keep in mind as we kind of uh, look forward uh, to KD's free agency because I think he's at the stage of his career where he views himself as having a very, very strong case as the best player on the planet. And I think, you know, some of this, you know, KD to the Lakers talk that is bubbling, I mean, that is a real issue that would have to be ironed out. I mean, to me, if he's going to join the Lakers, it's almost like LeBron has to pull a D-weight and say, hey, this team is yours and I'm going to take a step back. And I'm not sure I see LeBron quite ready to do that at this stage of his career. And if he doesn't, I think the same question of like the the push and pull of who gets to have control of the offense, how much freedom do you get to be the man? I think that could be a real hill that those guys would have to, uh, you know, climb. And I'm not sure they'd be able to do it.
0: I think one of the most interesting things about Durant's free agency is when you start to consider where else he could go, who else he could play with, or like who, who are the, you know, aside from Steph and what he has with the Warriors, who are the other kinds of players who are the ideal Kevin Durant teammates? Because if you believe in KD as, you know, this, the you know the vicious scorer that he is this guy who could who could easily put up huge numbers of points on a nightly basis do you want you know a point guard or, or a backcourt that's a little more deferential that's a little more going to be looking to set him up more pass first guys do you consider him as you know do you want to pair him with more of a star big man even though you know Kevin Durant's not necessarily the most natural pick and roll practitioner himself in terms of a guy who's going to be setting up like a rolling big he's pretty good at it but he's not a guy who's going to be doing it on the same level as you know the high caliber guards of the league I'm not even sure what the best case scenario for Durant is in terms of who's around him. Obviously, the thing we know about Durant is that he fits pretty much anywhere.
1: I've got a dream fit. Uh, It's my own personal dream fit, but I actually think it might be the dream fit. It will never happen. But can you imagine Kevin Durant in Brooke Lopez's role? (laughs) So like you've got Giannis (laughs) going downhill. It would be like a supersized, more refined version of the Westbrook and Durant pairing from earlier in their career where instead of having Westbrook toss up all these layups that he winds up missing, you've got Giannis slicing through the paint, getting dunk after dunk like he has all season, right? But then you'd have Kevin Durant in the stretch five role where you surround those guys with three shooters. They'd be incredibly versatile defensively. Uh, they'd have just maximum space to work. Katie could go one-on-one to his heart's content from the perimeter, attacking a wide open paint with Giannis sort of you know, there to kind of maybe play some two-man game at times. The offensive efficiency for that team would be completely nuts because look how good it is with Brooke Lopez. And now imagine if Brooke Lopez was Kevin Durant. Uh, That is my dream scenario. It will never happen.
0: Um, Let's just go ahead and get that transcription printed up on the Giannis ink letterhead ASAP.
1: Yes, no question. I mean, when you look at some of these other fits, though, I think there's a question in LA like I just raised. The New York fit, too, it's like him and Porzingis... It makes sense for like, if you're just like a fan of physiques, like if you're just a wingspan nut, if you're John Hammond, magic GM, John Hammond, who's been obsessed with wingspan for the last five years, the idea of a poor and Kevin Durant frontline is pretty incredible. But when you watch that play out offensively, like, eh, I think it'd be okay. I'm not sure it would be like great, great. And I, and I do think you need to find the right, you know, ball handler to, to kind of pair with, with Durant. And the teams that are kind of in the mix for him obviously they don't have a player who is on Steph's level. But I'm also not sure if there's a, a team that can really make a case and say, hey, we've got a ball handler who will fit so cleanly with you that you can feel like you can compete for a title right now if you come join us. I'm not sure I see that team out there.
0: No, I don't either. You know, it's going to come down to Durant for a lot of factors. But the difference between, okay, I could play with the Warriors, one of the best offensive teams in NBA history that you know plays in its own distinctive way and has its own style, or I can go to another team and, you know, play, you know, an even more focal role in the offense, but we're gonna be, you know, the 10th or 12th ranked offense, maybe, maybe the 8th ranked offense, if it's the Knicks or whatever. It's like that that's nice. And you know, I'm sure there's something to having that authorship of your situation in a way that he may not always in Golden State because the other players there are that good, at least when they're rolling, you know, Christmas Day accepted. Uh, but that's just a tough call. You know, if I were in his shoes, that'd be a tough call to make.
1: So I threw out this idea before the Christmas day game, uh, Clay Thompson and Draymond Green at the deadline for Anthony Davis. I personally believe golden state would do that. I mean, and this is not just an overreaction to how they both played on Christmas, which was not great. I think if you can make that trade, you have basically an assurance that Anthony Davis would resign down the road. And it'd be worth you know gambling on a Curry, Davis, Durant core. I mean, that's not much of a gamble. I mean, that's, that's pretty much one of the best big three in NBA history uh, going forward as sort of the future of your, your team. It would be worth breaking up the longstanding core to do that. If you were in New Orleans, I'm curious for your perspective on this. I mean, Alvin Gentry's got the relationships with Clay Thompson and, and Draymond Green. They've got a certain level of pressure, I think, to try to win because they've already paid Holiday if you were weighing trade options for Anthony Davis, and you were actually kind of seriously considering that, would you be looking at Boston's prospects and picks package, LA's prospects package, the idea that Golden State could throw some, you know, all-star level veterans at you? I mean, what would be your priority if you were trying to make an Anthony Davis trade?
0: I mean, it depends on what pressures that are, they're feeling there in terms of the need to win now, the need to kind of put something together really quickly, because to me the Golden State package is the DeMar DeRozan trade package equivalent, right? It's let's be let's be as good as possible right now because if you know if you put a team out there that's Drew Holiday, Clay Thompson, you know, Julius Randle, Draymond Green, you got Nikola Miritich coming off the bench, that that's not a bad group. Or, you know, you can toggle those bigs however you like. But I think that's a that's a pretty interesting lineup and a pretty interesting foundation. Maybe not a sure playoff team in the West uh obviously because they aren't with AD either but you know a team that you know with with a couple you know some pruning here and there with some minor additions could be kind of interesting but you know if you're trading Anthony Davis who's this you know generational talent an incredible superstar i think what you're hoping is to set up whatever that next stage of your franchise is going to be rather than just kind of playing out the string with the current group because you can get some extra wins if you're going to trade for guys you know it's not like Thompson is in decline i think Draymond is probably nearer to that point those two guys are both good, still going to be good players for quite a while, but I think you're looking a little further down the line if you're trading a guy like AD.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm not saying it would be like the smartest move to just take the veterans and run, just because Clay is a free agent, and so if you lose him, that whole trade, you know, doesn't really make a lot of sense. But I could see why a team would would say, "Look, well, we've got Drew in his prime. If we trade AD and we try to rebuild." then we're stuck with Drew, and then we have to trade him. His contract is huge. How much are we getting back? Like The, the path to a tank for the Pelicans uh, from a contract perspective uh, is more difficult, I think, uh, than, it, than it might seem at first glance. Okay, we already you know, bagged on Steph Curry a little bit. The other guy who was really taking a lot of heat on Christmas was obviously Philadelphia's Ben Simmons. Uh, Peter writes in, I'm increasingly convinced that Simmons will never be a smooth fit with Joel Embiid and Jimmy Butler. Will he even be worth a max contract in Philadelphia, given those two guys are going to be on the roster with him, and they're going to be commanding big contracts themselves? When should Philly consider trading Simmons for maximum value, and what returns would be worth trading away a player of his quality. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um I will say first, look, Simmons struggles the most against elite defenses. Boston is like very very uh you know perfectly geared to frustrate him with their personnel, with their intelligence, with their overall just aptitude team defensively. So I think Simmons looked worse on Christmas than he's looked on the average game. Now, that being acknowledged, I've had serious questions about his fit in Philadelphia ever since the Butler trade happened. Um, I think that they can still be a second round playoff team you know, with this group. But when I'm looking sort of long-term, big picture, I'm not sure if the best team built around Joe Ellen if you've also got Jimmy Butler locked in and look, they have to re-sign him. Otherwise that trade was an absolute mess. So I'm just going to assume Jimmy Butler is back. I tend to agree with Peter That Simmons isn't a part of this group going forward. And I think I would seriously explore trading Simmons next summer because he'd still be on the rookie contract because teams would view him as being capable of being a number one option. They've had that flash where, you know, down the stretch of last season, you know, he was, you know, playing this super fast style when Embiid was injured. They were racking up wins and he was racking up triple doubles. I think teams would say, look, he's just not a fit with Embiid. He could be a perfect fit for us. I think there'd be significant trade value next summer. And I wouldn't drag this thing out. Like if they re-sign Butler, I think it has to be, you know, Jimmy or Ben when they're doing their roster planning. Uh, is that too uh, hard line, Rob? I mean, are you going to talk some sense into me and say he, maybe he can fit there? Or or what's your your view on the state of the Sixers?
0: Well, I think it's really reasonable to look at the Sixers and, and think that those pieces don't fit quite right. Or at least, you know, they don't, they're not 100% uh, in alignment with one another. I think teams can win that way, though. I mean, when you look at, you know, for example, let's look at, you know, if you look at the Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, Clippers, what held that team back was that it didn't have the supplementary pieces, much like the Sixers don't. That's a really shallow team now after the Jimmy Butler trade. It wasn't that, you know, Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan Took up the same spaces on the floor. Like talented players can make those things work. If you have enough playmaking on a team and just enough shooting on a team, you can keep things clear. You can keep things flowing. I think the Sixers have a lot to learn as far as that stuff goes, and some of it too is not just you know is Simmons a bad fit for this team. It's is Simmons a bad fit for what Embiid specifically wants to do. And I think this is you know when you look at Embiid against teams like the Celtics, obviously Horford has had you know some success against him in the past in terms of slowing him down. A little less so on Christmas but if you have a guy like Simmons who isn't going to be a shooting threat who's still figuring out, you know, when he can cut, when he can kind of make moves off the ball and and when he should like be more of an outlet that's really tough for a guy like Embiid who wants to power post his way into 20 shots and 30 free throw attempts a game. It's just that part of it is kind of a rough fit. And I think Butler is caught in the middle here as a guy who could kind of serve either style. If, you know, say Embiid were to miss a month with injury and they were running you know, much as they did uh, in previous seasons without him and trying to you know play a little bit of a different style. A team built around Simmons and Butler could make a lot of sense. A team built around Butler and Embiid could make a lot of sense. Again, it's Simmons and Embiid and those guys' skill sets and where they intersect that I think get, things get a little tricky. Where I would want to pump the brakes a little bit on a potential trade discussion is just on the fact that Simmons is the kind of talent where if you trade him and he blows up somewhere else, that's the trade you regret for the rest of your life. That's the trade you regret that, you know, that may cost you your job. That's a big, that's a big deal. And so if you're going to take a swing that's that big, you better be ready for all the consequences that come with it.
1: Well, I mean, it it is a big deal and a kind of trade that could cost you your job, but the Sixers front office is real good at things that will cost you your job. I mean, they've been, (laughs) they've been going through all sorts of different things that cost you your job in Philadelphia um, brutal. I just, so my, yeah, sorry. That was a little corny. Um, uh, my concern though is, Embiid is not going to be healthy forever. Right. I mean, I think that we have already moved in this mindset where like we take his good health for granted because he's been really, really healthy this season and so productive and logging huge minutes and playing the back to backs and doing all the things that we wondered whether he would be able to do. I'm also concerned how long his window as an elite level player will last. Um, uh, you know, it wouldn't shock me if he hits 30 and all of a sudden he goes from being a top 10 player to, you know, top 20, top 30 type player uh just because of, you know, how big men, especially big big guys, you know, you know might age in this modern game, right? So, I think that there's a lot of urgency in Philadelphia, especially if you resign Jimmy, because we have the same concerns about putting him with his body and his health issues onto a gigantic contract. It's sort of like the time is now. So I do wonder if that kind of sets this the situation up where the timeline that Joel and uh, Jimmy are on is more accelerated than Simmons. I mean, to me, Simmons can be an all star level player for the next ten years. I wouldn't say that about either Joel even though Joel is not that much older, uh, or Jimmy, right? And so if, if you have that tension, you have that that pressure to make the process and all that tanking pay off with serious uh, post-season results, if you go out to the Celtics, say, in the second round again, and you're feeling this like local heat to kind of get over the hump and, and to deliver on all the hype with these superstars, I can see it happening. And look, also, as a guy who loves Ben Simmons and defends... Ben Simmons on a daily basis from Andrew's hateful tweets that he's always sending me. And hopefully Andrew is listening to this in Oman. He told me he would. So Andrew, chill with the Ben Simmons hate text. Uh, I think that there's a lot of better situations out there for him. To me, if you put him in the same kind of framework as as Giannis in Milwaukee right now, that team is really good. I don't know if they're 50 wins out of the gate good, but I think that's probably a 45-win team with Simmons, shooters, and kind of like, a, you know, a passable defense. I mean, to me, that could be really exciting, but also an effective squad. And when I look at, you know, his own vision of himself in terms of being kind of a franchise player, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, kind of the face of a team, which is what it seemed like he wanted to be when he's, you know, coming in, uh, you know, after kind of a, a short lived stint in college and, and being the number one pick and, and having all that next LeBron type hype. I don't see that being possible in Philadelphia either. And so I could see this, it almost reminds me a little bit of like, uh, you know, the Penny and Shaq thing being over before it really, really took off. I wonder if that's where Embiid and Simmons are heading. Again, this is obviously coming with the caveat of its speculation, but I think there's some smoke building here and not just because of what happened on Christmas Day.
0: Well, there's definitely smoke. And I think a lot of it comes from, as you mentioned, the fact that they acquired Butler, which... I think widens their window in a certain respect in terms of, you know, this is a team that's going to be, you know, looking to win as soon as possible and is more viable by having a guy like Butler on the roster. But it also does shorten it. it, it you know, it's shortening that ability to, to really stretch this thing out and play the long game with a guy like Simmons, where if you're saying, okay, he can't shoot now, but maybe in five or six years, he'll be the kind of player we need him to be. You can't play that game with Butler on the roster, at least not with him as a, you know, a critical part. And so, you know, that acquisition more than anything else, I think, changes the priorities of the organization or at least publicly changes, you know, what they seem to be and, and puts the Sixers in a pretty different space. I mean, it's it's tough. And, you know, personally, I would be exhausting all options to try to make those guys work together just because the talent is so incredible. But I think there is a pretty defensible stance where if the market is there and you can get guys who you think might be a better fit to take a swing on trading Simmons. But again, it's just it's just going to depend on you know what you're getting in return and if, if those pieces are really worthwhile.
1: Yeah. In terms of return trade packages, I mean, I think you're getting multiple really good picks or you're getting another quality young prospect or an established all-star level player and a pick. I mean, I think Simmons has still a very high trade value because of his Uh, his ability to be the lead ball handler for a good offense because of his age and because of his, you know, your ability to lock him in long-term, you know, you're trading for a a piece that you can build your whole roster around. And those, you know, don't come along every day. I I mean, it's almost similar to like the Harden trade, you know, when Oklahoma City, you know, moved him to Houston. I mean, I think you'd be able to get uh, hopefully a better package than what Oklahoma City got there. But you you would be selling high if you traded him this summer, no question. All right. Let's shift gears here, Rob, to uh Luka Doncic. And I teased this earlier. Uh, you wrote a profile on Doncic as just sort of the state of the Mavericks earlier this season. Uh since that profile ran, Doncic has only further taken off. I mean, he's hitting step back threes to win games on seemingly a nightly basis if if you believe, you know, the NBA Twitter diehards uh, who are just in love with this guy. I'm curious, of the stuff maybe that didn't make your piece or the stuff that has sort of lasted and lingered with you as a writer since you wrote that, What what is the thing that kind of, uh, you know, you, you take away from your experience of writing that story or of the Luca Doncic experience? I mean, what is sort of that lasting thought for you?
0: I mean, one of my favorite parts about reporting a piece like that is, you know, you talk to as many people as you can, you know, coaches, players, executives of the team, opponents, you know, anyone you can you can get a couple minutes with and just trying to get their, you know, unfiltered, unbiased, undirected thoughts about, you know, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you with this particular guy, kind of where their brain goes. And I think so many people, especially with the Mavs, were just so tickled by how much Luca seems to enjoy playing, like how much fun he has. Uh, which is a thing that he kind of alternates. When I watch him, it's like half the time he's having a lot of fun, half the time he's kind of a moody teenager. And I think that balance is really interesting for basically an NBA superstar, something that, you know, we've had guys who are really talented like LeBron right out of the gate, uh, but who have been super media polished in a way that Luca is not. You know, he's coming up an environment with Real Madrid where he was kind of cloistered and protected uh, from having to do many interviews, from having to do, you know, be a public figure. And even over there, where you know soccer stars are, you know the the A one billing, and guys who play basketball, they may be famous on a case by case basis, but just nothing like it is in the U.S. And so seeing him kind of uh, figure out how what kind of public facing figure he is, what kind of star he's going to be, uh, because you know he's the guy who, as you mentioned, is on the court hitting game winners, hitting clutch shots, but he's also the kid waiting in the tunnel for LeBron James's jersey, and I think that combination of things puts him in in such an interesting place
1: well plus his swagger is just through the roof right i mean that's one Unreal. thing I, I noticed uh in that video that they did a movie kind of tracking his his journey to the draft i think nba tv put it out or or someone uh maybe over at tnt did it and he's like you know opening scene he pops out of a lamborghini with the door raised and you're like oh okay like this is not a uh, sub kid who was playing for wichita state last year Um, but it does seem like to his, you know, kind of to a degree, like he's already been a pro. So he understands what, you know, goes involved with that. And he's already been pretty well decorated. So he's sort of comfortable in his skin from that standpoint. And he knows he's really good at basketball. So the, the swagger is there, but there's still that transition process that you're describing where it's like, it's one thing to do it you know, in in Eurobasket or the ACB league, but it's another to do it when you're taking a charge from LeBron James in LA, when you're hitting that corner three over the Portland Trailblazers to send the game to overtime on the road and your teammates are are putting their hands up like, oh man, we can't believe this kid just did this. Uh, There is a a real transition process. What's Carlisle's role in all this? How do you, how do you think he's a, you know, kind of handling this, because for years, the reputation was, you know, that's where like young players careers go to die, right? Like, he's going to be so hard on you. And he's going to be so demanding. And he's going to play the vets, uh, you know, in, in favor of you, especially the ball handling vets, that it's a tough fit, but it seems like it's been the opposite. I mean, he seems like the happiest guy in the league.
0: Yeah, I mean, you saw a little bit of that from the moment they drafted him from, you know, Luca's first press conference with the team, that Rick seemed to be, you know, particularly fond of him, more so than other young players who have come and gone through the Mavs. Uh, And I think that that part of it is definitely there. There's an investment throughout the organization. They recognized, you know, even before Luca really started to blow up, even when, you know, he was, you know, kind of okay in the preseason. Uh, You know, Carl even mentioned when I was interviewing him that there was a play where, you know they played in China for their preseasons late. Luca probably took like six steps on one play. You know trying to figure out the footwork of what's allowed by NBA referees. There were definitely <laughs> some growing pains early on, uh, and so that part of it was definitely there. But I think the Mavs immediately recognized the gravity of this pick and what Luca needed to be, and that started with okay, we gotta first we gotta give this guy a break because he's been playing nonstop. You know between national team commitments between Real Madrid. Uh, between you know playing in you know basically multiple leagues as european basketball goes we need to give this guy a break and then when he comes in we need to get him in shape which has been an ongoing battle and he's you know, he's already shed quite a bit of weight since the beginning of the season which has been i think pretty huge for him just in terms of the endurance uh but you know that's something that a lot of rookies go through in terms of you catch guys with their hands on their knees a little bit trying to get used to the conditioning of an 82 game schedule what oh, yeah. I love
1: about him, though, is he's a baller, man. He just wants to play. He doesn't. I think if he could play seven times a week, he would play seven times a week. I mean, you're totally right about the body transformation. There's no question. But there's some guys who just they want to be competing every night. This is what they're like, kind of called to do. You know, it's sort of like uh, his calling as a as a human being is to just be out there. And I think if you just let him play 48 minutes every single game, you never subbed him out and you had to play back-to-back-to-back-to-backs, he would just still never ask for subs. Rob, we got a question uh, about Luka from Hamid. And uh, he says, my controversial take is that Doncic is already a top 15 player in the NBA as a rookie and that an argument could be made that he's top 10 right now given Dallas's improvement and the quality of the other pieces on their roster so far this season. So obviously, you and I, Rob, uh, in the past years have always done the SI top 100. We never rank rookies because we feel that's unfair. But if you're going into next year's top 100 ranking process, what's your early thoughts on ballpark for Doncic? I mean, Hamid with the top 10 and top 15, that is very aggressive. I'm not ready to go there, but where do you think you'd settle in on that?
0: Yeah, I I don't think he's there yet. And a lot of it is, you know, he's obviously not there as a defender yet. He's not there on the same level as some of these other really high usage guys where, you know, Luka has the ball in his hands a lot. He's been playing point a lot for the Mavs. Uh, But they also kind of go out of their way to make sure that, you know, whether it's serving veterans, whether it's Harrison Barnes or Wes Matthews, these guys that they make sure they get their touches. But I think some of it is also to protect Luka from just overuse, from just wearing himself down by being in every possession, kind of creator. We also haven't seen how he's going to deal with, you know, you know, the rookie wall in terms of the way that some other rookies, you know, kind of decline over the course of their first seasons as they get used to it. There's a lot to figure out between now and the end of the year in terms of how good Luke is ultimately going to be, even in the short term. I think that you're looking at him kind of in the same range that we talked about guys like Jason Tatum last year, like like Donovan Mitchell, a guy who's going to be, you know, maybe in that mix for top. 30 top 35 players depending on how you parse it I think one thing that Luca has in his benefit is the multi-positional aspect of his game where he can be a point guard for you he can play off the ball for you if you need him to or be kind of a a two-guard creator for you if you want to go that route there's so many interesting exercises you could go through you know even from a developmental standpoint when you think about what's the next year of Luca's basketball life going to be like you know the Mavs have experimented with and they've talked about wanting to make him more of a post player, you know, channeling him more in the vein of these other kind of big, strong point guards, being able to exploit guys in that regard. And as Luca gets all of those little wrinkles to his game, that's when he becomes a much different kind of player. Because for now, you know, when he's running high pick and roll, especially late in games, he's had some incredible moments, he's had some incredible shots, but there are also possessions where he gets bottled up and he ends up draining 16 seconds of the shot clock trying to beat a guy off a pick and roll that doesn't really go anywhere yet. And I think as he you know, as he gets these little extra flavors where he can oh okay, he can attack this way, you can attack that way, he's a little bit of a post threat. He's you know, you can even throw him on the you know on the roll side of a pick and roll if you wanted to, because he has the size to do that. That's really what's gonna open up his game in terms of being, you know, a top twenty, a top fifteen, a top ten kind of talent in the long term.
1: Yeah, I think I see him in that top twenty five to top thirty range if he avoids the rookie wall like you were saying. And continues to play like this. The defensive questions are definitely there. The other thing I think there's a little bit of a warping effect in terms of appreciating Doncic because he is responsible for like 99% of their highlights, but the, the rest yeah. of the Mavericks have actually been pretty good. Like if you look at their on off splits, they're actually better when Luka's on the bench than when he's on the court. I mean, you know, classic JJ Berea effect and, you know, Dwight Powell being super efficient like he always is. Wow. And, Uh, you know, they've gotten, you know, fairly good contributions from lots of different places. So I do think, uh, Andrew loves to just kind of harp on like, oh, the, the Luca industrial complex. These guys are like too over the moon for this guy. I I do think it's overly simplistic to say that like all of Dallas's early success is due to Luca. Uh, but, and I, and I think it's fair to sort of moderate a little bit of how much credit we get, we give him at the same time. I had massive expectations for this guy. I said he had to be the number one pick. He has exceeded all those expectations. And uh, I encourage everybody to go read your story on Luka if they get the chance. Let's pivot to another rookie. I mean, to me, the the second best rookie this year, you know, the best besides Doncic is Jaron Jackson Jr. I wrote up a big profile for the Washington Post that went up on Thursday. Uh, People can find it on my Twitter page, Instagram. Uh, Please give it a look, you know, on open floor. We've almost turned, uh, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr. almost into a little bit of a mascot. You know, hyping him up. Andrew called him a Hall of Famer. Obviously, I have a lot of, uh, you know, nice things to say about him. I spent the last week or so uh, kind of digging in to the Grizzlies front office, coaching staff, the players. You know, Jaron's parents talked to Jaron a little bit about how did he get to this point as an NBA player where. At 19 years old, he's comfortable hitting three pointers over LeBron James, and he's capable of playing pretty high level defense. For you know, as a starter on a team that's defined by its defense uh, and has been for years and years, and and understanding the intricacies and and sort of how he's been molded to kind of you know hit the ground running as a rookie, I found this stuff fascinating. Rob, his dad obviously is a former journeyman uh, pro who played for the Spurs. Uh, won a title with Popovich in 1999. Uh, his mother is a high-powered lawyer. She's actually the Michelle Roberts of the WNBA. She's the executive director of their uh, players' union, um, and she's been, you know, involved with the business side of sports for basically her entire career. They both went to Georgetown. Uh, they said they told me if Jaron wasn't a professional basketball player, he would have been a lawyer. That he loves to be, you know, debate things around the kitchen table. They play banana grams like this board game family, uh, where everybody's competitive, and they're trying to sort of, you know, raise this guy to think for himself and, and to study uh, and to to immerse himself in, in what he needs to do. And right off the bat in Memphis, Marquessal took a look at you know. Jackson's off-court approach, how he is willing to do this, you know, the the memorizing of opponent tendencies, strengths and weaknesses, how he was able to call out other teams' plays before they took place. And Gasol, I think, really saw kindred spirit uh, in Jackson Jr. And the piece kind of dives into that. Uh, I'm curious, I know you got a chance to read it, you know, what did you take away uh, from, you know, Jackson's upbringing uh, or his current uh, state of affairs in Memphis uh, after reading that?
0: I mean, I think my first takeaway was that I was immediately struck by how Jaron Jackson Jr. became the ultimate Ben Goliver player, which is that he was basically groomed in a basketball lab based off of written instructions from Greg Popovich. Like, the Spurs DNA in this story is so strong, and it really comes through in a lot of the way that you know we experience his game in terms of the way he moves around the court in terms of just the the innate sense of court awareness this there's there's a role player ness to Jaron Jackson Jr that i'm sure he inherited from you know the way his dad played on some level from that you know accumulation of knowledge from how you know the right way to play the game quote unquote which i know has a lot of uh, a lot of baggage to it that kind of terminology but there really is something like that to the way that Jaron plays uh but speaking of Jaron, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that you think the pod uh, that you think the uh the nickname debate with Jaron is over i'd say doodlebug is is a strong contender uh a nickname that his parents apparently referred to him when he was younger
1: oh he's string bean sweet pea doodlebug dude i mean this guy had an unbelievable uh string of nicknames but his family now calls him j junior And I think I want to induct us into his family. I think the Open Floor Globe is now a part of the Jackson family. And so I think from now on, I might just call him Jay Jr. And people are going to have to get with that. You mentioned the Spurs. I loved how Jaron Sr. compared Mark Gasol and Jaron Jackson Jr. with Tim Duncan and David Robinson. I mean, the parallel is there for sure. I mean, Gasol, you know, later stage of his career, uh, you know, future Hall of Famer, uh, you know gets this young kid immediately senses his, both his talent and his work ethic and essentially commits himself to developing the young player and to kind of teach him the values those Spurs like values and, and the Grizzly Grizzlies like values in Memphis to make sure he's doing the right things you know on and off the court uh, you know Marcus saw there was a great moment in Portland uh, you know after their shoot around uh I asked him, you know, where where can Jaron's career go? Like how good can this guy be? Because like you mentioned, Rob, there's a role player aspect to his skill set in terms of the versatility, being a stretch four, uh, you know, being a, a very unselfish help defender, you know, that that's not necessarily what we think of when we think of a star. But there's also this incredible athleticism, you know, this ability to be a, a finisher around the basket, a guy who's, you know, the Grizzlies think, you know, a year or two down the line is going to be pump faking from the three point line and and unleashing counters to get all the way to the rim to, to finish plays, uh, kind of as a playmaker. You know, there's this element that you know Jaron Jr. took from watching like the incredibly athletic Oklahoma City Thunder, his favorite team when he was growing up. Uh, you know, the Kevin Durant and, and Russell Westbrook Thunder. There's that element to his game, which really gets me excited. When I asked Marcus all that question, the moment was incredible. I'll never forget it. He pointed up and said, look, do you see a ceiling? You know, basically this could go as far as he wants to take it. Uh, you asked the Grizzlies front office. I mean, they feel like he's a foundational piece for 15 years. Coach Bernie Bickerstaff says, look, defensive player of the year. That's on the table for him. Uh, his teammates are already referring to him as, you know, quote unquote, the franchise, you know, when he's 19 years old. And uh, I think that the main takeaway I had from spending time around him was that when you have a support structure and a talented player, that combination together can really make special things happen. You know, I think uh, he couldn't have asked for a better mentor in Marcus All. They've already kind of hit it off, like I mentioned earlier. But his parents too, in terms of, you know, letting him realize that, okay, you're in the NBA, but we still want you to sign up for spring classes. Like you're still going to be taking classes for for college credit online, which Jaron's doing. He also, by the way, r- volunteered to be a player rep for the Grizzlies at 19 years old. He's probably the youngest player rep, uh, you know, for the you know MBPA in the history of, of that organization. I would I would bet usually that's kind of a veterans role. Uh, And his interest there, of course, you know, goes to his mom's influence as the lawyer, as the person who's involved in the business of basketball. He's just interested and wants to know what the topics are and to be engaged. Special kid off the court.
0: I I have to say, I have to say, too, I never expected to be genuinely touched by a detail about a player wanting to be his team's player rep, which, as you mentioned, has generally gone down to, you know, the guy who... They just throw it to somebody on the team, uh, you know, as a, as a requirement. But the fact that Jaron did this, and the fact that his mom was, you know, the executive director of the Women's Association, there was a there was kind of a touching uh, synergy there. I thought.
1: Oh, again, it's like he's he's made from a lab. Like it doesn't seem like that should be real. The other fascinating detail was Jaron Senior. Uh, it was a coach and sort of molded Jaron Jr. along the way, but he didn't necessarily coach him at every step. He was a volunteer assistant in high school uh, when Jaron was already kind of a McDonald's All-American. They spent a lot of time together, you know, in the driveway kind of honing his skills, right? But Jaron Sr. was ahead of the curve. He saw the unicorn thing happening before it actually happened. And he wanted uh, his son to be able to shoot the three pointer, uh, to be comfortable shooting the three pointer. So all of their shooting drills, even though Jaron Jr. Uh, grew up as a big man, all of their shooting drills started from the outside in, and then defensively, he didn't want uh, you know Jaron Jr. to just be this low post shot blocking type of guy. So all of the the work that they would do from a player development standpoint on the defensive end. Was about stepping out to switch, you know, hedging, uh, you know, tracking ball handlers, keeping smaller guys in front of you, moving laterally, being versatile, and when we're looking at sort of the major trends of the NBA here over the last couple of years, the positionless basketball, the switching defenses we saw in last year's playoffs, like that's exactly where the game has gone. So again, it's that combination, that power of having an incredible body. Uh, like Jerry Jr. does to be able to do those things, but also to have the support structure that kind of points you in the right direction and says, this is what you're going to need to be successful at the NBA level for a long time. And it's just really cool to see it come together like that.
0: It really is. And I think, you know, it really sings through, as you mentioned, in the bit with Marcus Saul, in the bit of kind of everyone collectively with the Grizzlies acknowledging not only the, their want for Jaron Jackson to be really good, but kind of their need for him to be good. This is a team that this is, you know, this is kind of their opportunity to snatch one of these, you know, long-standing uh, Hall of Fame level players in the spirit of open floor. Let's just go out there and say it. Uh, you know, one of these guys that could change their franchise. And the fact that everyone who's associated with him seems to acknowledge that and accept it and appreciate it, I think really does set him up to be a, a pretty special guy.
1: No question about it. Um, let's close here, Rob, uh with just a New Year's check-in, if you want to call it that. I'm curious, you know, as we approach January 1st, I always like to say, okay, let's look at records. Um, let's look at recent play. Let's look at point differential and try to kind of pick out some teams that are maybe outperforming who they really are or underperforming who they really will be. Uh and I'm curious, were there any teams either way that jumped out to you that that fit into one of those categories?
0: So I've got 4 and all 4 are kind of in the thick oh my of gosh. the western yeah all 4 are in the thick of the western conference playoff race. So right in that glut from you know 6 to 14 of these teams that are just kind of trying to figure out where they're going to fall in the hierarchy. Um uh, you can, so can hear go, can how stunned I am.
1: You can hear how stunned I am because <laughs> we don't really usually prepare quite that well here at the open floor. So congratulations, Rob. Let's hear it.
0: Uh, I mean, off the top, I think the Pelicans are a team that is better than 15 and 20, and I think it's very easy to bag on the Pelicans right now. I mean, how we spent 20 minutes earlier talking about how we're going to trade Anthony Davis off of the Pelicans and the various suitors, but this one's not too complicated. I mean, it's a really shallow roster that can't adapt to injury, that has had two major compounding injuries on each end of the rotation so far with Alfred Payton and Nikola Mirotic, two guys who basically had to be good for the Pelicans to be good and have been out of the lineup. And so... When you're missing both those two guys on a team that already doesn't have, in particular, any wings, so you can't really stretch and adapt your lineup the way you need to, that team's just not going to be very good. And I keep coming back to the fact that when Davis and Holiday are on the floor together, this team is 10 points plus 10 points for 100 possessions this season. You know, when they have their guys, when they have good players on the floor, this team is good. It's not rocket science, but I think the Pelicans are better than 15 and 20. What do you what do you make of them so far?
1: No, that's a really good take. I mean, I, I guess my question is, okay, they're better than 15 and 20, but are they a playoff team? And I think even with some of the things that have held them back to date, I still have real serious questions about whether they're a top eight team in the Western Conference. You know, if they finish 12th or 13th, Um, that would be better than where they are right now. And I'm sure that their records are going to wind up being better. I'm not sure they're a playoff team though. Uh, Quick take, yes or no playoff team.
0: I think probably no. And I think a lot of it's going to come down to this early stretch, really hurting them because some of these other teams are going to be better. You know, whether you're talking about the Rockets, whether you're talking about some other teams, you know, I got a couple marked down here that we can go through in terms of other Western teams that can improve, but the Pelicans are really—they're really, really going to have to make some headway just to get into that again, that thick of the bottom half of the playoff bracket, which is as competitive as I can ever remember it being. Honestly,
1: no question. All right, your second team.
0: All right, second team—a team that is a little worse than its record. The Sacramento Kings at 18 and 16, uh, which I mean, this hurts because we don't get to talk positively about the Kings all that often in the you know the grand scheme of the last 10 years in the NBA. Uh, but they're one of the bigger discrepancies in terms of if you look at Pythagorean win-loss record, which is, no, you know, you just look at offensive rating, defensive rating, kind of how this team should be performing, and they're one of the bigger discrepancies in the league relative to how they actually have performed, because Pythagorean win-loss says this is a 15-19 and 19 team rather than an 18-16 and 16 team, and a lot of that comes down to the fact that the Kings, your Sacramento Kings, have been the single best crunch time team in the NBA this season, and I think there's reasons to say, look, that's wonderful, Absolutely great job! I think they they stick to their style and crunch time in a way that some other teams don't. They keep pushing the pace. Aaron Fox is continually aggressive in those situations where other point guards might dial it back. But I'm going to stop a little short of saying this is the best clutch team in the NBA this year.
1: Yeah, uh, really good point on that. Also, congratulations on setting a new open floor record for using the word Pythagorean. I think you got it in there twice. Uh, that's probably twice more than we've ever used it previously. But you're speaking my language. I love when. The IQ quotient goes up. Uh, what Andrew's not here, um, I think that they are good, uh, but again, not playoff good. And they're probably going to settle in right around 500, which is where they are right now. Um, you know, maybe a, a touch below. But to me, they're still you know, even if they win, let's say 38 games, which is absolutely you know possible for them. That is such a huge step forward from where they've been that. Uh, you know, they should be, that would be the most celebrated 38 win season in a long time. If that's sort of where it goes. Um, I'm curious who else you've got on your list. Can I guess that maybe Utah's on there?
0: Utah may perhaps be on there. Utah at 17 and 18 is, is significantly better than that, I think. And a lot of that comes down to look, a couple things. One, if we look at who has performed well against the West so far. Utah is one of the, the highest-ranking teams in that regard. Sixth in net rating against Western Conference opponents, basically plus three for 100 possessions. And they haven't even played the Suns yet. Four games against the Suns left on the schedule, not to mention they have two against the Cavs, two against the Knicks, two against the Bulls, two against the Hawks. Haven't played any one of those teams yet. So the five worst teams in basketball are all still fully on the Jazz schedule, which is one of the main reasons why they have, you know, one of the easiest schedules the rest of the way this season. And so... I think when you look at their body of work so far, all of the indicators suggest that this is a good team that's been bogged down by a really tough, really road-heavy schedule. So I would say get your second-half resurgence narratives ready to go.
1: I think that they have a chance to be a home-court team in the West. Um, that sounds a little bit nuts given how they started, but look, they're not that far out of that uh, that same you know window right now. I think it's like maybe four losses. Uh, you know, or four games in the loss column, they're going to have a much better schedule coming up here. And I think you saw on Christmas and also in their game, uh, you know, prior to Christmas when they just smacked Portland, that they're starting to figure things out. They're getting the rhythm back. um, And they still have the, the kind of talent level that landed them in the second round of last year's playoffs. And, you know, I was at that game on Friday, last Friday, when they beat Portland 120 120 to 90 in the Moda Center. It was Portland's worst home loss in 14 years. And they left the building just stunned. I mean, they were, you know, dropping in threes from everywhere, uh, you know, having lots of defensive success against Damian Lillard uh, and CJ McCollum, really, you know, uh, locking up Portland's offensive scheme to the point where, you know, the, the complimentary guys were you know, being forced to take shots that they're not really capable of hitting. Uh, they just kind of bamboozled it and turned Portland inside and out. And to me, you combine that with the big win on Christmas. And that tells me, look, Utah's behind Portland in the standings right now. That's not going to last for very long. And I'd be a little bit concerned about uh, you know the, the Blazers' standings here going forward. They could sneak into the playoffs, I think. Uh, but to me, those were kind of uh, exposing type games. It's like, oh. Uh, you're not as good as we thought you were maybe back in, uh, in November.
0: Yeah. I mean, if anything, the Blazers have seemed particularly vulnerable to those kinds of ebbs and flows from month to month.
1: Uh, no question. All right. Your last team, Rob.
0: Okay. Last team. And it's one we talked about quite a bit on this podcast already is the Mavericks who I think are worse than 16 and 17. And I think that's because on some level you are who you are on the road. And it's really where the good teams in the league separate themselves, which is some bad news for the Mavericks, who are 2-14 and outside of Dallas this season. 2-14, and the worst road record in the NBA so far. Cleveland has won eight games total, and they've won more road games than the Mavericks have. So that's, that kind of, <laughs> I, I wish that that weren't as much of an indictment as it is, because Doncic has been so spectacular. The Mavericks on the whole, I think, have been a good story But this is a team who I think when the schedule fully regularizes, when, you know, all is said and done, we get the equal number of home and road games, they would have to cover a lot of ground just to be, you know, in that on the playoff bubble fully based on how they performed on the road so far. Just because, you know, on any given night, Dallas could be in that mix of playoff teams just because the West is so cluttered, just because, you know, every win and loss for anyone shuffles the order so much. But the road record really gives me a lot of pause in thinking about the Mavs as an actual playoff team.
1: Yeah, and what gives me pause and actually makes me chuckle is that I didn't even ask you to only pick teams from the show, you know, the Western Conference and just completely ignore the Eastern Conference. But I love that you did um, because I think it's a good message for Andrew to realize like where the action's really happening. It's in the Western Conference. We can just dismiss the East, not worry too much about it. I think once it shakes out, Dallas will be outside of the playoffs. Can you see any scenario where they try to get aggressive at the deadline to boost their playoff hopes? Or do you just let this season sort of play out organically and then figure it out in the summertime?
0: I think they're pretty open to possibilities. I don't think they're necessarily in a rush. I mean, when I was talking to Don Nelson, uh, Donnie Nelson, their general manager uh, for the Luka Doncic piece, I think the way he put it was anything more than they won last year, which I believe is 24 games, is good. Uh, anything short of 82 is fine. So you know, I, I think they want to be an improved team from last year, which they're going to be based on well, their record so far.
1: They're going to get that by uh, uh, by the All Star break. I mean, basically, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah. And so you know, if the right trade comes up for Dennis Smith Jr., would they say yes? I think probably so. If you know the right kind of taker comes along for Wesley Matthews, would they jump on that? Maybe so, but. I, I don't think this is a team that's feeling a ton of pressure to really make some kind of you know vault forward for this season per se.
1: Well, the right trade for uh, Dennis Smith Jr. is is any trade for Dennis Smith Jr. Right? Boom. <laughs> are you as down on him as I am? I mean, I'm out. Uh, I'm go ahead, move him. You know,
0: no, I'm not so down. I mean, I think especially with young guys who are accustomed to handling the ball, that they need time to grow together. And I think Smith has been. He's taken enough strides defensively this season where you can start to see how he and Doncic might play together as a long-term pair. I think they have a lot to figure out. And with that, you know, the Mavs are going to have to make a call as to whether they want to invest in that relationship and whether it's really worth their time to sort out those problems or if it's just better suited saying, hey, there are other guys who fit better. Let's just keep moving.
1: Feel you. Hey, parting shots. We're going to do a New Year's resolution for a player or a team or anything else you've got for the NBA. I'm going to give you mine first. Obviously, 2018 at the Open Floor Globe was the year of Giannis, and to be honest, 2017 was also the year of Giannis. As was 2016. Every year is the year of Giannis, including 2019. Here's my New Year's resolution for Giannis: bring this MVP home. You're going to need to have some signature performances. LeBron's going to be uh, hot on your trail. There's going to be, a, you know, a deep cast of other contenders. Giannis, I need a signature 50-point night from you. You can do it. It's basically 25 dunks. That's you know, not that much more than you're getting on a nightly basis right now. Giannis' career high is actually 44 points. He's done it twice. There's untapped potential there, Rob. I need a 50 spot from Giannis as my New Year's resolution on behalf of him.
0: No, I think, I think you've earned it. I think, uh, I think he's more than capable, to be sure
1: awesome what do you got for me
0: I think this is the year Joel Embiid needs to get into meditation uh you know this is (laughs) this is gonna be a process this is gonna be a process with Ben Simmons and Jimmy Butler look Joel whenever you're feeling like you're not getting the ball enough and we've already seen two or three quotes about him feeling like he's not getting his touches let's center ourselves let's get into some Ujjayi breath and we're gonna roll we're gonna roll with it let it roll off your back find your place in the universe and go out and play the next play
1: now you're speaking my language. First of all, and Embiid complaining about his role should be a bigger story than it has been. And we've actually undersold that on open floor. So maybe I could double back with Andrew on that uh, next week, because that's a great point. Second of all, are you into meditation? I- I'm sensing with your, your name drops of the different styles there that you might be. I've been loving it in 2018. One of the best things to happen to me last year was to finally dig into Headspace and Calm and these other apps and and learn how to sort of you know manage stress and anxiety, uh, you know, with the help of uh, you know time honored traditions of, of meditating. Are you into it too?
0: I need to do more, and frankly, I think you'll notice a, a recurring theme with my resolutions is some like vicarious living through these oh. other NBA players. I'm really suggesting things for them that I need to do myself, uh, but but we'll get around to it.
1: Me too, Rob. I got to score 50 in a game this year. There's no question about it. <laughs> no hey, doubt. Th- thanks so much for pinch hitting, for subbing in for Andrew Sharp. We really appreciate it, Rob. You killed it. Open Floor Globe members, don't forget, email us. Andrew's back next week. He's going to have all sorts of crazy takes from Oh Man. I cannot wait to hear about it. Email us. OpenFloorMail at gmail.com. OpenFloorMail at gmail.com. And don't forget, go to Apple Podcasts. Find our page and leave us those five-star re- ratings and reviews because we really appreciate them. Just search for Open Floor on Apple Podcasts, find the page, scroll down, tap five stars. It's just that easy. We're like your Uber driver, your Postmates delivery guy, whatever else. You know, we're in your life on a regular basis. Show us a little love. Uh, we appreciate it. Also, you can always find us on the world famous radio.com. Until next week, Rob, I will talk to Andrew.
0: Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network search on apple podcasts or google podcasts for locked on your favorite team or tell your smart speaker to play podcast locked on your favorite team
1: it's the locked on podcast network your team every day